0: Welcome to Financial Frameworks Podcast 16, our first pass at the language of finance. Finance has its own dialect, and understanding the meanings of terms, phrases, and their application can be crucial to a clear understanding of what is happening. Knowing how to use these terms is critical to good decisions. My second reason for this topic is that it was a common thread of inquiry over the years among students I taught namely their desire to understand clearly the language of finance, common financial terms and language that had clear and precise meanings to those with financial training, but not necessarily to those without the training. As you can imagine, in a business setting, dealing with someone with some financial background or training places those without that knowledge at a disadvantage. As is always the case, we will cover financial terms in a practical way so that you understand some of the whys as well as the whats of the terms. We'll use examples and we'll relate them to our financial framework's core tool cost versus worth. After listening you should be able to apply and use these terms. The standard approach to learning financial terms and their underlying concepts is usually encyclopedic and it is content oriented. By that I mean that the approach is to memorize as many terms as possible, purely based on definitions. I prefer an approach that starts with a small number of critical terms, then apply them using examples and problems, and let the student or listener consider them, see whether or how they're useful, then introduce another round of terms later. It is less comprehensive than the traditional approach, but the knowledge seems to stick better based on the feedback I've gotten. We'll look at five specific terms or sets of terms that represent important concepts, have widespread use, and at the same time are both precise in their application while being flexible in their usage. I've selected them for your consideration because of their importance, and again, applying my railroad roundhouse approach to education, I find them to be good entry points for all sorts of exploratory thinking. We'll look at real dollars versus accounting dollars. Secondly, book value versus market value. Third, direct and indirect cost categories. Fourth, return on investment and also return on invested capital. And finally, we'll look at an overview of the prime rate. Number one, real dollars versus accounting dollars. When you're reading financial information, whether it's a blurb on the internet, a financial report, or an article in a newspaper, it's important to differentiate accounting values from market values when you're analyzing that information accounting values are those calculated according to rules and regulations often from FASB, the financial accounting standards board fasb or by the irs as in depreciation rules or other legal regulations while market values are based on current data book value which is usually the cost or some real dollar valuation. I'll use two examples to illustrate why you need to sort the wheat from the chaff here. Example 1. Recently, Berkshire Hathaway reported their second quarter earnings for 2022. Several sources reported that Berkshire Hathaway had net earnings of $43 billion dollars for the second quarter of this year. That is the number that appears on the net earnings line as reported to the Securities and Exchange Commission. So if you dissect the consolidated earnings statement, you would see operating revenues of $76 billion, operating expenses of $65 billion, for an operating income of $11 billion. You would also see a line stating that investment and derivative contract losses were reported at $67 billion. Reading footnotes 4 through 6, you understand that almost all of the $67 billion is a change in the market value of securities held by Berkshire Hathaway that have not been sold. This loss occurred during the second quarter of 2022 when the market went down significantly. Footnote 4 also shows that the market value of those securities that just lost $67 billion dollars are still worth $327 billion. In short, Berkshire's investment holdings declined significantly, but still held immense value and did not relate to the company's operations or the company's operational earnings. The change in value is a reporting requirement from FASB that says companies have to report changes in the market value of their securities. Since The securities have not been sold. In order to properly value the company and the stock activity, one needs to look at, number one, operating earnings, which we already did, and they show an $11 billion profit, and ask the question, is this a healthy business? Secondly, with the changes in the value of the securities, look at the underlying value of the company and the securities, and ask the question, Does this business need cash and is it likely to have to sell the securities and will that impact them negatively? In this particular case, looking at the balance sheet, Berkshire is holding an additional $105 billion in cash, so there is no pressing need to liquidate the securities. So while the data is complex, the application of cost versus worth is fairly straightforward And you can see the difference between accounting dollars and real dollars. The second example is the other end of the spectrum. Let's assume you have a computer on your desk and that you expensed it on your income taxes the first year, or it is fully depreciated. And therefore, in accounting terms, it's worth zero. Let's say you've owned it for three or four years. If you wanted to sell it, you might get something for it as used equipment, Or in use value terms, it's worth what you can avoid spending to replace it because you're still using it and you're happy with it. So it is of value to you, even though in accounting terms the value is zero. The example is simple, but you get the point. The second set of terms I think you will find useful are book value versus market value. The simplest way to think about book value is that it is what you paid for something. Or in corporate business terms, the net asset value in the case of a machine or other asset is the cost, what the company paid for it, less any depreciation. In the case of reading a financial statement for a company, you're not looking at a thing, you're looking at a whole company, it will be all of the assets minus all of the liabilities, net asset value. You can find that definition in Investopedia. It's a simple concept that is a standard way for communicating a dollar value for something net of any change. It's not perfect. It is an approximate value, as the previous example of the computer on your desk shows. But it's also reasonable to assume that a piece of equipment experiences wear and tear. Newer models are better, have more features. So the equipment is losing value as it ages. So you apply depreciation. On the other hand, market value is just what it sounds like. What will somebody pay for an asset? What they will pay for it can be assessed, or it can be appraised, or it can be a tax assessment. So it may be calculated, but it is a, it's a real dollar value that will show up in a check. If we're looking at a whole company, let's take General Electric, for example. It's the number of shares outstanding times the stock price. So, as of today, General Electric has 1.087 billion shares outstanding. The stock price at the close of business on Friday was $77.72. So, its market value or market capitalization is $84.5 billion as of Friday. So, investors looking at GE look at that as the market value. As you've seen with these two sets of concepts, The reason that these terms are useful is that they carry concepts that can be applied in all sorts of situations across all sorts of assets to get at the value of something. And again, we're looking at cost versus worth. Direct and indirect costs is our third set. Costs and measuring them are critical to a business or a family's success and prosperity a standard method for tracking costs and examining their significance are direct versus indirect costs if you're part of a large company indirect costs are the same as fixed costs for example let's say you're a shoe company and you need to manufacture a new shoe you need to build a new manufacturing facility that cost is fixed it doesn't change if you make ten thousand shoes or a million shoes however if you're a small business you can use the same logic but it makes more sense to assemble indirect costs like property insurance or office utilities, anything that doesn't go directly into your product. Let's say you're a baker and the direct costs would be flour, eggs, sugar, the flavorings, the labor that was spent baking. Those are all direct costs that go into the three dozen or 20 dozen rolls that you, the baker, makes while the insurance cost is spread across a year. It can be allocated after the fact, but it is not directly applied to the saleable product. Direct costs in a large organization are also called variable costs. And like the bakery elements, they depend on the volume of production or services. That's fairly straightforward. Let's go back to a small business and differentiate again direct versus indirect and why that's important. In my consulting business, I have travel expenses that vary depending on the client I'm seeing, and I also have software costs for the podcasts that I'm producing. I consider those costs to be direct costs, but I want to keep my podcast revenue stream separate from my consulting revenue stream, and I want to tie the direct costs for each directly to the revenue stream to determine what the profitability for each line of business is. The logic is similar, but the method is slightly different. Now let's look at return or return on invested capital. Return on investment is the profit or the net income divided by the total investment. The result is expressed as a percent usually and in annual terms, almost always. What was my return for the year? The calculation is quite simple. Two numbers producing a third number, a percentage. But the underlying assumptions and the significance of what is included and what is not is what makes ROI such a valuable, thoughtful, and informative tool. I'll give you two examples. When I add up the investment costs, should I include everything as in the life cycle costs of an investment or just input the upfront dollars for the equipment or the investment? The two examples, and I'll post these on my website, are for life cycle costing, a link to Harvard University's life cycle costing calculator. It's open for view by anyone, so it's not essentially proprietary. And it's an example of including absolutely everything that will be considered part of the investment in the lifetime of the investment. It's very detailed. It's very sophisticated. It's very complex. And just looking at the assumptions alone is worth your time. It's a very valuable tool in determining every possible cost of the investment. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, I will also post one version of Warren Buffett's reported shorthand rule for achieving a 10% return on investment. The tool sets an estimated price for the investment and asks the question, will this investment return 10% of the original investment on an annual basis. I've seen several sources state that this is actual and it's useful and that Buffett and Munger require a 10% cap rate for their investments, capitalization rate for their investments. Very simple, very straightforward. Of course, they do some additional research, but that's the starting point. And if it doesn't pass those terms, it's not applied very simple, very straightforward. Both examples illustrate the wide number of ways that this tool is useful. Now let's look at how results from ROI can be used to make more refined judgments about an investment or an enterprise. Investopedia uses the definition for return on invested capital as, and I quote, Return on invested capital, ROIC, is a calculation used to assess a company's efficiency at allocating the capital under its control to profitable investments. ROIC gives a sense of how well a company is using its capital to generate profits. Return on invested capital is the amount of money a company makes that is above the average cost it pays for its debt and equity capital. I will post a link to Investopedia's very useful and insightful definition and their online dictionary, and you can read further details of how they make this assessment. Let's look at one more term, prime rate. This is not a term you use in everyday conversation, but it is a term that you will hear more frequently in the near future as lending rates increase and it is a reality that impacts any borrowing that you or your business or your employer engages in. Let's look at prime rate in terms provided by the Federal Reserve, because they really are the arbiter of interest rates. And I will post this link on finframeworks.com. The Federal Reserve looks at prime rate in these terms. They ask the question, what is the prime rate, and does the Federal Reserve set the prime rate? I quote, the prime rate is an interest rate determined by individual banks. It is often used as a reference rate, also called the base rate, for many types of loans, including loans to businesses, small businesses, credit card loans, etc. The Federal Reserve Board reports the prime rate posted by the majority of the largest twenty five banks in the United States. Although the Federal Reserve has no direct role in setting the prime rate, many banks choose to set the prime rate based partly on the target level of the federal funds rate. The federal funds rate is the rate that banks charge each other for short-term loans, often overnight loans, and it is established by the Federal Reserve. End of quote. That is the technical answer. That is the official answer. The short answer to the question is that the prime rate in real terms is the Fed funds rate, again, what banks charge for overnight, which currently is a target of 225 to 2.5%. You've been reading about the Federal Reserve raising that rate. So it's a 2.5%. What banks do is they add 3% to the upper number there, and that is the lowest rate that commercial banks will lend money to their best customers. The prime rate today is 5.5% at most banks. It's published daily in the Wall Street Journal. And all other lending rates march upward from that 5.5%. That is the prime rate. Okay, we finished our terms here. Now I will give you a couple of questions, problems to consider as you use these materials and to assist you in your financial decision-making and your financial thinking. Question one, accounting versus real dollar value. It is clear that understanding this is important in reading financial statements, annual reports, quarterly reports, etc., etc. However, can you think of one or two instances where your finances, business or personal, in which you used an accounting value to improve or benefit your finances? Or in basic terms, you got to keep more money. Conversely, can you think of an instance where an accounting value did not help your financial position. I recommend that you note your answer to these questions. Writing things down is always good. Second question has to do with return on investment. Would you use Buffett's 10% rule to begin an investment candidate search? Let's assume the answer is yes. So the second part of the question is, what information will you collect in order to be confident about that projected 10% return rate? The last question is an interest rate question. If you're considering buying a home in the next couple of years, will understanding how the prime rate works be helpful to you in predicting or projecting or estimating what your mortgage rate will be? If the answer is yes, how so? If the answer to that question is no, why won't it be helpful? Let me also give you a general learning tip. I recommend that you maintain a list of questions. So let's say you're driving down the road or you're sitting waiting at a doctor's office for an appointment and you're thinking about financial matters, but you don't have the time or the means to research the issue at that specific moment. Write it down for later. I keep a three by five notebook for questions that I'm thinking about so that I don't lose them and so that my curiosity is met at some point and my knowledge increases. My final segment of the podcast are resources for your consideration and use, where some of this information came from or was corroborated. The descriptions and links will be posted on the website finframeworks.com. Why have I selected these resources? They're topical, they're easy to use, they're in English, and they're authoritative. All four sources also have other materials for you to use, in case you think of additional questions. The first resource is the Merrill Lynch How to Read Financial Reports. I've mentioned it before and I'll post it again here so that you don't have to go looking for it. It's in English, it's straightforward, it's neutral and unbiased. Secondly, Investopedia. They have a dictionary of terms. The link I will post is uh, to uh, the terms we use today but that also takes you to their general dictionary. The third point is an article entitled 60 Business Finance Terms You Should Absolutely Know. The website is Fundera. It's a subset of NerdWallet. They list 60 common terms. About a quarter of them, like liquidity, gross profit, depreciation, are terms that are topical and useful. They're all in one place, and they apply them. The last site is the Federal Reserve, the Board of Governors, the Federal Reserve website. Each Federal Reserve district has a website, while this is the governing organization website. The link I will provide takes you to the research section. All pages have a well-built search bar and search engine for easy navigation. That's at the federalreserve.gov. As always, feel free to send me questions. I hope that was helpful to you. Thank you for listening. Financial Framework's next podcast will focus on the consumer price index, what it means to you, and how you care about it in a practical way. We look forward to seeing you then. Mike Lehan.